Good evening, everyone. Hi, my name is Frances Flanagan. I'm a historian and research affiliate of the Sydney Environment Institute. Before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and as we share in our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge, and embe to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Okay, so it's my great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's event. Um, it's the second in the Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas Small Changes Conversation Series. This is a series in which we hope to showcase some of the latest um, academic research into the environment through the lens of lifestyle, putting researchers in dialogue with the people who make and design the things that we eat, drink and wear every day. So tonight our focus is milk and the regulatory landscape for raw or unpasteurised dairy products. Now, debates about the benefits and risks of consuming raw milk are bound up in wider questions that surround our relationship with modern food, much of which is a product of industrial processes involving long and complex chains of supply. So before we begin our discussion of raw milk, I thought it might be helpful to just briefly sketch the processes and history of the mainstream consumption of dairy in this country. So in Australia, we drink a lot of milk. On average, 107 litres um, per person per year, together with 14 kilograms of cheese and 4 kilograms of butter. We're the fourth largest exporter of dairy products in the world, and Australian dairy farms produce more milk using fewer cows and less space than ever before. Selectively bred and reared, the average lactation rates for an Australian cow have increased from 2,900 litres to 5,900 litres of milk annually, a rate that's only made possible through a continuous cycle of calving, milking and impregnation. These are conditions that make cows susceptible to lameness and mastitis. It's also worth bearing in mind that before the industrial food age, the consumption of liquid milk was far from universal. Many cultures, such as the Chinese and the pre-colonial societies of Native America, Australia and Oceania, did not have dairying traditions at all. And in Europe and South Asia, um, the consumption of dairy products can be traced back to around 6,000 BC when um, domestic herding animals were first kept. But for most of this period, dairy was not consumed as fresh liquid milk, but rather in the form of cultured and separated dairy products, such as yogurt, cheese, butter and whey, forms that could be stored and transported without rapid, rapid spoilage. Our contemporary enthusiasm for, for the routine consumption of fresh liquid milk can be traced back to the 19th century when urbanisation and the movement of women into the, industrial pattern, into the industrial workforce altered patterns of breastfeeding and saw the rise of animal milks being used as a substitute for breast milk. Pasteurisation, combined with expansions in rail and refrigeration technology, gave rise to our current system of mass production in which fresh milk is stored, pasteurised, stored and distributed to places that are often far removed from the site of its production. So with me to discuss raw milk tonight in Australia are three experts. Um, the first is Alana Lin. She's a postgraduate student at Monash University in the Faculty of Law. And her research explores the contested regulatory landscape for raw milk in Australia. Alana has over 10 years' experience in public policy in Australia and the UK, including regulatory reform in the energy, water and legal services markets, consumer policy and environmental resource management policy. 
Her current areas of research include food and consumption politics, food safety regulation, and the multiplicity of risk perceptions and realities. Alana is the chair of New South Wales Cancer Cancer Council Ethics Committee and also an amateur cheesemaker. Christy Schelling is a research fellow at the Centre for Values, Ethics and Law in Medicine. He completed a postdoctoral fellowship in the Population Health Intervention Research Centre at the University of Calgary and was previously in veterinary practice in Australia and the UK. His research and teaching interests revolve around the ethics and politics of human interactions with non-human animals and the social and cultural dimensions of public health. His research is interdisciplinary and draws together insights from science and technology studies and social and normative theories. He's the author of numerous articles on issues ranging from animal experimentation to diagnostic innovation and biosecurity. And finally, Claudia Bowman is an international cheese expert and judge and founder of Australia's premier artisan cheese company, experience company, Macintosh and Bowman. She has more than 12 years' experience in the cheesemaking industry. Okay, so I'll ask each of our panellists to introduce their work to you for 10 minutes and then um, I'll have a conversa- we'll have a conversation together and then open it to the floor for questions. Okay, so first up is Alana. Hi, can you hear me? Is that the right distance? I was taught I had to make sure the distance was correct on the microphone. Excellent, everyone seems to be hearing me. Um, thanks, Francis. So... I'm not going to go into detail about my whole thesis because that would bore many of you, but I thought I'd just give you a bit of a reason about how I got interested in raw milk in the first place. So I was living in England for about four years, a few years ago, and there I ate a lot of cheese, I ate a lot of raw milk cheese, and I also started making cheese. It was quite bad cheese, but it was cheese all the same, and I was able to source raw milk from our local farmer's market where I could buy it. When I moved back to Australia, um, I looked into doing the same, And what I found out was that I couldn't do this, and I really became interested in why not. So what I've ended up doing is working on a doctorate on about the fraught and sort of fascinating world around raw milk risk and how we regulate it the way we do. I'm particularly interested in how riskiness is understood and whether there are more responsive ways that we could regulate it, as well as other foods that are considered to be risky for people to consume. In particular, I'm really interested in the way that scale, by which I mean factors like the size of the farm, the size of the herd, the distance and the mechanisms through which milk is distributed, can change the risks that a product poses and therefore drive different ways of regulating it. So in Australia, as I'm sure many of you would know, um, most most raw milk products can't be sold for human consumption. There are some exceptions to this. You know, some certain raw milk cheeses are permitted, which I'm sure Claudia will talk about more. No, she won't. She won't talk about it more. I won't talk about it more either, but that's fine. <laughs> um, certain raw goat's, milk, uh, raw goat's milk is allowed in certain states. Um, but fundamentally, most raw products can't be sold. So just because something can't be sold, however, doesn't mean these products aren't being consumed. It's still legal to drink raw milk or to use raw milk. It's just really about how you obtain it. So in my research, what I've tried to do is really discuss the fact that there are essentially in Australia two, what I'm turning markets, in raw milk. The first is what that's a very small subsection of the mainstream dairy market, and that's where you have things like the permitted raw goat's milk and the certain permitted raw, raw milk cheeses. The second, as I see it, is one where there's a diverse range of formal and informal arrangements that individuals, farmers and communities have put in place to provide and gain access to raw milk. 
This can include something as simple as owning your own cow or co-owning a cow, which you know might be as between, say, five families. My sister out in Orange, her and five families co-owned a cow and they took care of it and they drank its milk and they used it together. There's nothing stopping them doing that. On a, on a more large scale, as some of you I'm sure would be aware, there's things like herd share schemes, which have been established where a farmer may choose to host either a number of cows or a larger number of cows, and individuals are able to sort of buy shares in the cows and therefore they co-own that cow and they get access to some of that milk. And so that's another way that, you know, you've got these systems set up in place. The other way through which raw milk is, is around is through cosmetic milk. So some of you may have seen cosmetic products which are often available in health food shops or various other places, and that's where raw milk is being sold but not for human consumption. And the regulation explicitly requires it has to be labelled like that. People can purchase it and then people can choose to do what they wish with it. Um, I should point out this milk is quite expensive. You're often looking at $7, $8 a litre, which is obviously quite a lot more than your standard milk. Um, so these markets, as I see it, they coexist alongside each other and over the top see a range of rules and requirements that apply in different ways. And in particular, and this is really part of my research, there are significant debates and tensions over the extent to which the formal government food regulatory arrangements apply to some of these, I guess, alternative initiatives where people use to access raw milk. You might have seen a case recently in the media, it's got a bit of coverage in South Australia, where a farmer has been running a herd share scheme and this has been taken to court by the Food Regulatory Authority over there for breaching food regulatory standards. And so what you have here is a really a debate around how applicable food requirements are to different kinds of processes that people use to produce raw milk. So beyond personal interest in raw milk, I think I want to go quickly through, I think, a couple of reasons that raw milk is actually a really interesting way of looking at regulation and regulatory debate. I think the first is it really highlights inconsistencies in, that exist in the way that food risk and food safety are understood and responded to. Um, on an international scale, this occurs in the fact that some places allow raw milk and some places don't. So if you look at comparable countries to Australia, you've got countries like parts of the UK, so England, Wales, Northern Ireland, um, New Zealand, much of Europe and parts of the US permit raw milk to be sold under certain different rules and requirements. I'm not going to go through them all now. But Australia doesn't. And other places in the US don't and other countries don't. And Scotland doesn't, for example. But what I find interesting about this is all of these regulatory decisions are really based on the same scientific evidence base. So what you actually have is this international science evidence base that regulators are looking at and coming to quite different conclusions about how they interpret that in terms of the riskiness for their population. So I guess I'm interested in what this means in terms of just the, the way science is applied and the consistency at which riskiness is determined. Closer to home, I think the prohibition on raw milk also creates some interesting inconsistencies in the way we regulate risky food more generally. So, for example, we can eat other risky foods. You've got things like bean sprouts, which can carry listeria, can carry E. coli, can make you really sick. They can't be pasteurised, and yet we're allowed to eat those. And at the same time, we've got things like, I don't know, say something like raw chicken. There's no labelling on raw chicken to say, that's not for human consumption. You can take it home and eat it if you want. No one's going to, you know, you can buy it. And I just think, and yes, people, we trust people to make common sense decisions that they're not going to. But I just think it's interesting in the way that certain foods are perceived to be that much more risky than other foods that are arguably risky. 
Um, and so I guess for me, this drove really interesting is why is raw milk different? I think the second reason that raw milk is also a really interesting topic to look at is it illustrates how a single food type can pose different risks depending on how it is produced. So and this brings me back to the issue of scale I was talking about before. Well, I think the issue of scale is really noticeable in a number of ways that raw milk and risk really interact. The first is really around the contamination of milk. So I'm not a microbiologist, I should just point this out. You know, um, I'm not an expert in milk contamination. But from, if you look at the literature around there and you read the regulatory statements, one of the really key ways in which milk can get contaminated and then potentially make you sick is really around poo being on the teats. It's a really key thing. Poo gets contaminated, falls into the milk, that can make the milk carry bacteria, and that can make you sick if it has it in there. So if you think about this scale thing then, though, is if you own one cow, 10 cows, maybe even 80 cows, you could potentially feasibly, and people do, clean the teats of the cows really well before you milk the cow. If, on the other hand, you own 10,000 cows, that's just not going to be viable. You can't do that. So I guess what this raises for me as a question is not that one milk is definitely safe and the other one isn't, but just that there are different ways you could potentially manage the risks being posed by this through different ways of managing the system, managing production. The other element, another example of the way scale enters this is around the distribution and impact of disease that comes from raw milk. So... Again, if you look at the fact that if you have a farmer and they're producing milk that goes to, say, 10 families locally, if that milk happens to be contaminated and people got sick, the extent of that impact would be significantly different from if you have raw milk being produced and it's being sold in a supermarket and 10,000 people buy it. And so I guess from a health impact and societal impact, it's quite different. And so, again, I think... There are different ways you can manage these risks, and the current approach to regulation really tries to sort of fit a one-size-fits-all approach to it instead of looking at how you could be more nuanced in responding to the different risks that come out through raw milk. Um, finally, and this is, I guess, something I think Francis was mentioning earlier as well, is that raw milk, with all its debates around riskiness and whether or not we can drink it, has often in some ways come to represent, for certainly some parts of society, wider debates around the extent to which people are able to make choices around the foods they want to consume and the control people feel they have over the food system. And it's just something that I think broadens out to more wider issues around the food sovereignty, which is something that's increasingly coming up as, you know, with movements to more local food, interest in artisan food production. It's just It can be seen as sort of not necessarily emblematic, but at least sort of representative of some of the issues that are coming up more widely in food systems. So, in conclusion, I guess what I want to say is I think there is really definite room for more thinking about how we regulate raw milk and if there are different ways that we could approach it. As I see it, there are a spectrum of risks that come with raw milk. I don't think I would ever say that it's risk-free, but there's a spectrum of risks. And these are directly and often linked to different approaches to dairying and different approaches to food production. And looking at an alternative regulatory options has the potential to, to allow possibly greater choice, um, greater consistency, as well as greater sort of, I guess, what I like to have food empowerment, and as well as also potentially bringing in to the regulatory framework um, food systems that are already occurring, which then has the potential to actually arguably make it safer than it is if it's occurring completely independently. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm looking at. Wow.
being everything. So, ah, hello. Um, first up, I like cheese, I like milk. I have a Dutch heritage, as my surname suggests. I was brought up to think that images such as that are vaguely normal. When I had children over when I was a child and went to primary school uh, in, in the inner west, we had an implement there called a cheese slicer in the drawer, which no one knew what it was for, but I did, because I was from that particular that particular heritage. So I'm not here to be necessarily anti-raw milk or anti-cheese uh, in that regard. Um, it's also worth pointing out that uh, I guess you could say the, univer the university is conspiring to make my slides cheese-coloured. Uh, this wasn't my choice. I had prepared these slides on a purple template, which was the medical faculty's prescribed template, and then two days ago they issued a new template, so I dropped these slides into that template, which is actually orange, and I ended up with this. So I just thought, that's the way they go. So as I was intimated earlier, I have uh, a number of different hats as an academic. One of them is where I'm a vet. I was trained 20 years ago at this school, in fact, um, when facts were very facty. So the idea that there was a value basis to facts or that you, could you couldn't disarticulate facts from values wasn't something that I was brought up with in a scientific discourse to particularly value. The other hat I wear is something rather new, and I'm a bioethicist. So I'm going to give a talk tonight not necessarily to defend pasteurisation, but to point to some of the benefits, perhaps, that aren't necessarily explicitly articulated in this debate. So I'm going to give a standard public health account and then I'm also going to give what you might consider to be a normative account of why some regulation and perhaps existing regulatory structures need to be sustained in certain ways. In saying that, I agree with what Alana has said, and I think you'll find a lot of coherence in the arguments that we're making as well. So, it's always best to start with children and animals. Pointing out that we live in a cow culture, or we used to anyway, from the beginning, I think uh, this is something that was brought up by as well, but uh, from the very beginning when we begin to be lived at sedentary existence, we have based our cultures around cows in our particular society. There is an alternative account which is emerging in the 21st century, which we're increasingly becoming a chicken culture, mainly for the reasons of cheap production and climate change and ways in which we basically manufacture and process food. So as a cow culture, though, We've continued well into the 20th century, and be, but before that, and before any time like this, in history, animals were surrounded us all the time. There used to be dairy farms in cities, places such as New York, Sydney and London had small pockets of cows which were operated and fed within the confines of the urban environment. One of the risks associated with having these populations of cows in close proximity to humans at this time was the threat of infectious disease. And this is why milk is considered to be risky. It's essentially the potential for the milk to be a medium of microbes which can cause diseases in human populations. The most prominent disease of this time was actually the white plague, which is TB, essentially. Tuberculosis is endemic in cow herds, or was endemic in cow herds, 
up until eradication programs started to take place in the 19th and 20th century. In the decades, the first decades of the 20th century, bovine TB was associated with about 25% of all human cases of tuberculosis, predominantly in children. Most of these cases were pulmonary, so in the lungs, but a fair proportion were also tuberculosis, which basically occurred in other organs, usually in your neck or in your alimentary organs or in basically your guts. So a major scientific public policy concern facing industrialising countries was in some ways to try and control tuberculosis. It has been noted that it's a disease of industrialisation. So one of the first key public health measures ever undertaken in industrialising societies was pasturation. It was the heat treatment of milk specifically to remove the risks posed by the presence of tuberculosis and the correlation of tuberculosis population infections in cows and people, linked by the consumption of milk. It was recognised that this had to be a herd health measure. So if you can think about beef herd or cow herds, I should say, and people as a population, as a herd as well, these are contiguous. So you had to treat both the same. So with the late 19th century consolidation, expansion, industrialisation of milk production and distribution systems, which actually took cows mainly out of the city, it removed a lot of the risk of TB just because the aspirational aspect, so the aerosol, wasn't necessarily such a risk anymore. But the risk of milk remained. And because you had larger scale milk production, because you had more cows in concentrated dairies rather than smaller pockets in urban environments, you had greater risk of tainting and spoiling and contamination. So the purity of milk became a key concern for 19th century social reformers in the United Kingdom and US because of the detrimental and disproportionate health burdens caused by contamination of milk and the incidence of these diseases amongst the populations of slums and tenements. In 1909, the US Public Health Service reported 500 epidemics of milk-borne disease in the period between 1880 and 1907. Mass population measures were needed because of the inability to determine the causal agent and the link between infections and in people and in animals. So pasteurisation was introduced as a very blunt instrument and it worked. Where pasteurisation was introduced, tuberculosis declined, particularly amongst children. In comparable industrialised society that resisted pasteurisation, TB rates also declined Far, but far more slowly and not very quickly in children. So if you want to talk about contested science, the reasons for the decline of TB is another one of them. There are lots of different hypotheses, the most famous being the McEwen hypothesis, which is basically that social medicine was the reason why TB rates declined. Most people think that it was streptomycin and in better clinical care. Some people think that it was pasteurisation and, and tuberculin control, tuberculin, sorry, control of tuberculosis in cattle herds, so basically TB testing cows and taking cows that tested positive out of the herd and slaughtering them, removing them from the food chain. And then there are some people that just think it was basically the improvement in living conditions because tuberculosis being the type of disease which is very, very much linked to its expression is linked to being in a socially disadvantaged situation. A third of the world's population has tuberculosis no, it's weird to think it that way. It's an organism which has basically evolved with us over the last 
20, 30,000 years, only 5% of people who carry the bug actually get the disease. So for this measure to be successful, there are a whole other reason, a lot of confounding factors. But nonetheless, there's a reasonably strong case that pasteurisation had a lot to do with it. These measures also had broader ripple effects. Rather than unregulated free enterprise, milk became a resource that was distributed from a central accredited source. Pasteurian regulatory practices not only produced safe food, they also worked to cultivate germophagic subjects who make rational decisions to safeguard their health based on theories of contamination and hygiene. This has good things and bad things associated with it. This sanitary movement also transitioned into free milk programs to try and improve the health and well-being of socially disadvantaged children. It was mainly achieved via regulation rather than litigation. So the consumption of raw milk has never really been prosecuted. It's been a regulatory concern, not a legal concern in that particular way. In the North America in particular, I think it is now becoming more of a legal concern. Uh, one of the reasons why they've resisted putting people in court for consuming raw milk is because they don't want to have the science challenged in court. It's one of those things. So the nature and the path of transmission between cows and peoples remains a point of contention, as I noted, and the primacy of pulmonary lesions suggests that aerosol rather than gustatory infection was the primary cause of tuberculosis in children. But that said, if you go to developing countries where there is no pasteurisation of milk, and milk consumption is increasing, infections with tuberculosis, in particular the mycobacteria, the bovine version, both in the lungs and around the alimentary tract, are high and increasing. In regions where bovine TB is common and uncontrolled, milk-borne infections are the principal cause of cervical lymphadenopathy, lymphadenopathy or scrofula, and abdominal and other forms of non-pulmonary TB. So pasteurisation helped to establish an image of offering basically a safe, sanitised milk through... Uh, so pasteurisation in the name of TB established milk as a safe and sanitary food, but this practice has now continued on the basis of the consequences of industrialization, the risks posed by fecal contamination, particularly bugs that you're going to find in cow poo, which are Campylobacter, E. coli and Salmonella. So... That's the standard public health account of why you should pasteurise. But there's a normative account as well, and that intends to extend the idea of community beyond the human species. As human beings, we're made up mainly of microbes. There are good microbes and bad microbes. 3% of them are bad, and those are the ones that we focus upon with things like public health measures like pasteurisation. 97% of the other ones, the other 97%, we know that a fair proportion of them are actually pretty good for us. And then there's a whole bunch of junk we don't really know about the rest. So despite what you read on the bottle of floor cleaner or antibacterial wipes, nature and society cannot also necessarily be separated. You can't defend yourself against bugs. We're in nature. We are nature. It's all the same thing. You can't have this wall there. So this idea of having microbial threat is actually about specific microbes that can disrupt your community in one way or another. And we manipulate microbe communities all the time through processes such as cheese making and other types of products which involve fermentation. Pasteurisation enabled industrial cheese making, but it also obviously destroyed 
the potential for these microbes to be part of cheese-making processes in countries where you have these regulations. In this nation, in this regard, food is also politicised in terms of relation to health. This politicisation includes protection against disease, as well as societal expectations about what is normal, natural and necessary to eat. Public health accounts emphasise and respond to these risks, basically posed by the bad microbes, and discount the value of the good ones. But in contrast, post-Pasteurian models of holding up microbes as our allies are sort of model ecosystems and things that we can necessarily use as exemplars of sustainability point to microbes as having lots of different types of potential, rather than just being necessarily harmful. Under these accounts, in the post-Pasteurian account, part of learning how to consume raw milk is also learning how to basically cultivate the right microbiome. So the right microbiome, the microbiome is all the bugs that live inside you and basically help constituent you. If we had no bugs inside us, we'd die. We rely on them for all sorts of regulatory biological processes. And the way that you are meant to intend to do this is actually to eat the types of foods which encourage you to populate your ecological microbiological community with the types of bugs that are going to afford you good health and good protection of sorts. So healthy food, whether it's sanitised or whether it contains good bugs, is actually an ideal and it's relative. It's relative to the values you hold and what you think is safe, what you perceive risk to be. It's relative to different times and places. If someone offered you a glass of raw milk in late 19th century London, I recommend you don't drink it. If someone offers you a glass of raw milk in a paddock next to a cow that looks relatively healthy and clean, they take a sip, I'd think maybe that could be okay. But the choice would be yours. Because this optimistic vision of microbes has really been enabled precisely by the fact that pasteurisation has been so successful. If you didn't have pasteurised milk, if you didn't have control of the bugs that cause disease, you wouldn't be able to have these conversations because the risk would be apparent culturally in a way that they aren't right now. This is not to say that science speaks some sort of unmediated truth about nature and that public health has got all the right answers, but it does provide a heuristic for intervention to protect health for those who need protection. So, as the anthropologist Heather Paxson has pointed out, much of this raw milk debate is really about how people ought to live and what they owe to one another. Current discussions around raw milk in North America in particular are strongly invested in a libertarian ideal and the refutation of nanny politics. Those opposed to state interventions in markets often subscribe to this unarticulated version of social Darwinism, which has values that imply that those with the misfortune to be harmed by their participation in unregulated markets do so because they had it coming to them. They weren't careful, they didn't know what they were doing. The unregulated marketplace and community is a kind of noble jungle where the fittest survive and they're better educated and judge consumers and consumers who exercise the right type of judgment and make the right choices and have better ability to pay for the types of protections that are necessary 
do better than those who don't have that particular capacity and skill set. So you have to remember the liberty to consume raw milk comes at a price, and that price is often paid by others. As Simon Chapman, who's a, quite a pushy public health practitioner but does make some valid points sometimes, has pointed out, before you had the type of mandatory regulations that now inhabit our society, had all number of harms happening all the time. Before mandatory pool fencing laws, when a toddler drowned in the pool, it was the fault of the feckless parents to actually look after the kid properly. It wasn't the fact that there wasn't a regulation there to make sure that any pool that was built had a fence built into the budget. When kids got heavy metal poisoning from playing with toys that were painted with lead paint, the parents were bad because they hadn't done their homework and, and basically checked out to make sure that that particular toy was safe. In this world, where those protections aren't offered, those that can't keep up or find their way basically into national health statistics, where almost every measure you find that the poor, edu poorly educated and socially disadvantaged are disproportionately represented in injuries, deaths and harms. So having regulations is a constraint on your liberty, absolutely. But all liberties must be fettered in one way or another. The darling of libertarian philosophers and libertarians in large is J.S. Mill, John Stuart Mill. He spends 10% of his book describing the principles of why liberty is important and 90% of the book describing how it has to be controlled. Libertarians focus on the first 10%. They don't really pay much attention to the rest. And it begs the question, why must we think of the individual as being basically separated from society in this way? Why is there a conflict between individual liberties and regulations that are there to protect us? Usually the types of liberties that we're giving up are relatively trivial. It's difficult to think of examples where public health measures cause extreme sacrifice by individuals for the good of society. Perhaps an involuntary quarantine for extremely drug-resistant TB or because you've been exposed to someone with an Ebola is the type of measure where you think that is quite an extraordinary thing, a sacrifice to make. But that is always made with a reciprocation of palliation and treatment. They don't lock you in a shed and wait and come back and look and see every week if you're alive or dead. You get medications, you get care, you get some talk of treatment to recompense you for giving up your liberty because of that particular thing that's happened. So governments proposing and upholding these regulations are also democratically elected. Public health departments are accountable to governments who are accountable to the electorate. So liberty is important, but it does not trump harm prevention, especially when the harm is foreseeable and likely to be disproportionately affect those who are least able to cope with it. So public health interventions are expressive of the kind of societies we want to live in. And I think I want to live in a safe, equitable and just version of one of those. It depends on collective interventions and some sacrifices for liberty can be worth it. So if people want to drink raw milk, that's up to them. But any commercialisation of this needs to be small scale, based on a relationship of local trust or collective values, and consumed by a public that is educated and cognizant of the risks. There is a paradox in nanny state arguments. To be a nanny state position or a measure, the limitation of freedoms actually has to be good for you. Otherwise, it's not a nanny state thing, it's just a coercive measure. 
personal autonomy and the liberty to do what you want to do is very important, but it's not important necessarily, more important than other values. If you want to be your own nanny, that's absolutely fine, but do not presume that some, you have some sort of natural right to take nanny away from others. Sorry, I've got a very croaky throat. Um, thank you very much to the uni for including me in this evening's discussion. Um, also, I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land, the elders past and present. <clears throat> and thanks to all of you for coming, regardless of whether you're prove or milk uh, or not. Um, it's really exciting for me uh, to be in a room of people where we will soon be exchanging ideas. Um, I've really enjoyed the last 48 hours. I have been in contact with more people than I can count on my two hands, more industry, key industry people. And I've kind of run them through my ideas and I've said, look, I have no idea what the audience is going to be like tonight, so this is what I'm thinking of communicating. Hit me with you know, your best and, and uh, give me a shot to kind of uh, prepare myself. And uh, one of them said, why are you taking part in this at all? Like, wh what's your point? And I said, look, we can get a man on the moon. We can eradicate polio in India. You know, we can use stem cells to cure blindness in a man that's been blind for 43 years. Surely there is a way that we can safely get raw milk from a farm to the city. And this gentleman said, Claudia, there is. It's called pasteurisation. <laughs> Thanks, smartass. Um, usually I present uh, in a very free manner, and I've actually really enjoyed the last... Well, it wasn't that enjoyable, it was very rushed, but I've, I really enjoyed the process of being able to get some ideas down and I'd actually like to be a bit more formal than I usually would in one of my presentations by kind of reading. It's going to be a bit annoying for you all, I'm sorry. But basically, in short, I've decided that I am calling for milk law reform in Australia. I think Australia needs better regulatory framework and consumer education so as to protect consumers from risky milk issues. Current Australian legislation is actually creating the risk as frustrated consumers, and I see a lot of them. We run cheese classes and a cheese-making workshop, and I get cheese enthusiasts, milk enthusiasts coming to me saying, Claudia, where can I get some raw milk? Like, surely, because you love your cheese and you're passionate about raw milk cheese, you're going to know where I can get it from. So I'm seeing it all the time, and I see how frustrated consumers are in taking matters into their own hands. Their resentment of our outdated, unsympathetic legislation is fueling a black market of raw milk being retailed for human consumption, but under the guise of pet milk or cosmetic milk. We can see examples, and it's been mentioned already, of sneaky packaging, of retail false pretense, and the consumer is often ill-informed and completely unsupported by the obvious lack of industry regulation for raw milk because it doesn't exist. I actually think it's a miracle that more deaths haven't occurred. Um, I acknowledge the inherent risk associated with raw milk. Absolutely I do. And how susceptible raw milk is to being spoiled. 
but just as there is risk in the consumption of many other foods, such as raw fish used in sushi, rock oysters, and undercooked chicken, and I loved your point before, and, you know, toxic fruit and vegetables grown in dodgy water. I mean, we all know, I think it was last year, we had the Nana's Berries. 31 people were seriously ill from a Hep A outbreak. Uh, from berries. Who would have... I mean, amazing. You know, so there's inherent risk in, in humans consuming meat, fruit, fish, veggies, uh, yet milk is still the most feared. Uh, like, as you guys have already said, I don't think that this discussion is about if there's risk or not. We know there is risk. It's really about the management of that risk. And I'll give you the same example that we had before, um, you know, about chicken. You know, we are educated as children that you cannot eat raw chicken. Um, it's not safe that your chicken cannot be pink in the centre. Uh, a rare steak, however, and I'm a very... I'm a passionate rare steak consumer. Um, my husband often says something like, you know, God, I've seen cows get hurt worse than that and get better. Uh, but, you know, as long as it's seared on the outside, I'm happy for it to be completely blue. Uh, yet, you know, it's not safe to do so with chicken. So how is it that we know that as adults? It's because we've been educated. And I'm, what I'm proposing that, you know, I'm sure we can manage the same risks around the milk. Basically... You know, and I won't go into all the examples that I had here, you know, about, you know, further examples of humans effectively managing health risks. I did do a bit of a, a Google search on the Australian Bureau of Statistics of death reports and wasn't at all surprised by the huge number of deaths in Australia um, by the effects of drowning, they say. You know, but we don't have the Australian government uh, banning swimming or banning beach going or banning access to open water sources just because there is an inherent risk in, in humans drowning. Um, again, we have regulations. We have um, homes and uh, commercial uh, swimming pools, they must better sign post, you know, the shallow end, the deep end, or at the beaches. Beaches aren't patrolled today, or the beach is closed, or strong currents. So it's about re regulation, obviously. Uh, we know that there's a lot of risk in humans playing football, um, but we certainly don't see the Australian government stopping the watching of football or the playing of. Instead, again, they better regulate it. Uh, we can see that in league, the code has banned uh, the shoulder charge um, and penalties are now imposed on players who engage in this risky manoeuvre. Club coaches and players are trained on how crucial it is for players to take responsibility and be better aware of their own positioning going into a tackle. Um, look, at, you know, again, it's risk management. Currently, we have legislation that means that no-one's actually accountable the milk producer isn't accountable. They are packaging their milk clearly labelled that it is not for human consumption. The retailer isn't accountable uh, and the consumer is ill-informed. And then we... So, like, basically, that just all culminates to a disaster waiting to happen, as it has recently. Um, if we have a regulated industry and an educated consumer and a commercially viable business model uh, can be established where a producer retailer will be accountable for the quality and integrity of the product, I think we'll see a greater emphasis on making sure that product is of extremely high standard. I don't think anyone's going to allow a product to be sold to somebody uh, without you know, that happening. But basically, consumers want a choice. Consumers deserve to have a choice. I'm not asking all Coles and Woolworths to, to start stocking raw milk. 
Uh, I definitely think it's a boutique niche industry uh, and that it is, it is possible for it to be done and done on a very small scale and done you know, at, to exceptionally high standard. Um, today, you know, I called a friend of mine who's a dairy farmer. I spent a lot of time with her uh, growing up on dairy. I thought I wanted to be a dairy farmer when I was much younger before I finished school and, of course... Uh, we had the deregulation of the dairy industry in the year 2000 and that was just never going to be possible for a young female dairy farmer to actually have a viable future on a farm. Um, but I, I asked my friend, I said, can I just ask you a question I already know the answer to? And she goes, go for it. I said, would you ever drink the milk from your vat straight after milking the cows and drink it raw? And she goes, of course I would. And I said, would you take a jug of that from the vat, put it in your fridge for five days and drink it in five days or six days? And she said, hell no. And this is where the problem lies. And consumers are not familiar with raw milk and, and the, the real delicacy, the vulnerability of the product. Uh, they often treat, and I know a lot of people that buy raw milk, the pet milk or the, cosmopol- the, uh, the bath milk, and they treat it in their fridge as if it is the same supermarket milk, uh, not realising the differences. They think it has, like, you know, a couple of weeks shelf life, when actually it doesn't. So, basically, trying to think of solutions and, and my idea. What if raw milk was not banned, but, like, in swimming and football, it was actually just better regulated? A framework of regulation and education created and allowed raw milk to be delivered safely to consumers. Don't say pasteurised. What if we collected the milk at the farm gate, we batch tested the milk at this point, then freighted the milk at four degrees to the city retailer, um, you know, gave the milk a shelf life of no more than 48 hours to 72 hours. And I'm talking exactly in the same way that your cold-pressed organic juices um, are, are prepared and sold. Um, what if each of those bottles had a unique code on it um, and a testing kit was provided to you, um, not dissimilar to a pregnancy testing stick, that the consumer could simply, when they open the lid of the bottle, dip it into the milk and that stick would actually just tell you if the milk was presenting with unsafe um, levels of bacteria, or unacceptable levels of bacteria. So we've got accountability. Um, what if transparency of the product origin, the time of the milking, the breed of the cows, the, you know, the herd size? What if there was a barcode on the bottle of milk that you could use your phone, scan it, and then it actually made all of that information transparent um, straight away? Like the history of... Um, in, in my mind, I know this sounds a bit ridiculous, and you know, I was telling my husband, my husband all these ideas, and he was just rolling his eyes, and he was like, oh. But I was like, but think about the Domino's Pizza tracking app. Has anyone done that? It, you know, just, I actually did it, not because I wanted to eat the pizza, but I wanted to check it out. Uh, we created an app, um, thought it was going to make me rich and famous, uh, didn't do that at all, as you can obviously tell, um, but I've got this real interest in apps and how they work, and so I decided to order pizza off Domino's and I watched completely fascinated as I got to be a part of the process and then it arrived at my door. And I thought, what if we can do the same thing with our raw milk? You could actually order it, because you can do that in New Zealand. You can actually buy your milk raw direct from a dairy farmer. Uh, so that, that production consumption chain's really short, obviously. Anyway, 
I just think that if the Food and Drug Administration has approved pregnancy testing sticks with, su- testing sticks with such sophisticated abilities such as a week's estimator, as I'm sure most of you know, it doesn't just tell you anymore if you're pregnant or not. It actually gives you a, an estimation of how many weeks you are pregnant. And, I mean, uh, surely we can just convert that to something. So, anyway, a recent interview that Elle McPherson did that I just read... Apparently, one of the reasons why she is the body and she looks as she does today, even though she's 60 or 70, is that apparently she carries in her bag at all times a urine kit, a urine testing little um, strip, and it will tell her how alkaline or acidic her body is. Um, and if she needs to sit down, lie down, or, or if she can have a coffee, or if not because she's been stressed or whatever. I mean, how is it that in 2015 we don't already have these strip testers for our milk? I don't know. Yes, it will be expensive. And I'm a passionate food enthusiast and cheese enthusiast, but ultimately I'm a, I'm a businesswoman. And I have been looking at different models as to, I'm so passionate about this, maybe I should do this. And then I've gone and done the figures and I've gone, <laughs> won't be doing this. But the commercial reality of this being logistically possible, of delivering a safe raw milk product to consumers will result in a most expensive product that very few people can actually afford, much like the current trend of the new organic cold-pressed juices. And I had one this morning. I went to Orchard Street and I paid $15 for 500 mils of a beautiful juice that I'm convinced is going to make me healthier. And I really enjoyed that. So if people are paying 30 bucks a litre for, you know, spinachy juice with banana in it, surely they're going to be happy to pay 15 bucks for a litre of raw milk, right? I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. Uh, but, you know, just as Australians are obsessed with safe rock oysters and sustainable caviar and truffles and Wagyu beef, one of the butcher shops in Sydney is seriously retailing Wagyu beef of a certain bloodline at $450 a kilo. They're not selling much, but it's there if someone wants to buy it. Amazing. Consumers want a choice. Consumers deserve a choice. It's 2015. We live in Australia. Uh, They should have a choice. I am respectful and, of course, I operate my business in accordance with current Australian legislation, but I don't agree with it. Uh, Guys, we can do this. I really believe, again, if we can put a man on the moon, if we can eradicate polio, uh, and and I I actually Google search incredible, incredible achievements by humans. And I just have to read this to you. In 2008, it has nothing to do with milk or cheese. I know I'm going over time. In 2008, an unsuccessful heart transplant of a 14-year-old from South Carolina culminated in doctors having to fit the patient with two pumps to keep her blood flowing for almost four months until another transplant could be carried out, this time successfully. In total, she lived without a heart for 118 days. Tell me that's exciting. But, like, that's amazing. So, like, if that's amazing and incredible and, and us human, human beings achieve that, surely it will be as incredible when Australians realise that we can safely produce raw milk and have it retailed safely to humans who wish to consume it, as has been done successfully by humans in other parts of the world for over 8,000 years. So, in summary... Current Australian legislation is actually creating risky milk issues because it's forcing this black market, and Australia needs milk law reform. Thank you.
thanks all of our speakers for very lively and engaged um, papers. Um, I just, to kick off the first question, I'd just be interested, I suppose, to open up uh, to Claudia and Alana to get you to respond to Chris's broad point about um, the idea that uh, these there are risks, but a disproportionate quantity of risk is borne by the most vulnerable, the people who can't keep up, you know, people without the apps, perhaps, that um, you're referring to, and, and just how, how you respond to that idea. No, you go first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I mean, I think it's true. Things like, you know, if you're, say, pregnant or if you're, you know, immune compromised, stuff like that, if, say, raw milk is contaminated, you are bearing potentially, you know, you could potentially get sick. But I do think that we are able to sort of, I mean, I think consumer information is a big part of it, but admittedly, I've previously worked in part of my, in regulation and there is also a range of sort of evidence base that consumer education doesn't actually always work, that people don't always actually use it and then take it and make an informed decision. But on vulnerable people, I think, I mean... I hate to say it comes down to choice and making four decisions, but I think I'm particularly around raw milk. It is, it is a very niche product. I think a lot of people... I know you're saying concerned about people making um, ill-informed decisions. I'm not convinced there's that many people making completely ill-informed decisions. Um, some of my analysis has been looking at a lot of the submissions that are being made to for standards, the Food Standards Australia and New Zealand um, as part of their review of the regulatory process. And... A lot of the submissions are making very specific claims about the kind of raw milk that they want to consume and why they want that particular milk. So people want raw milk that is organic, they want it that is produced locally, they want it that is from ideally a farmer they know. So people are trying to put in place safeguards to protect themselves. And I think that... Those kind of systems, and again, which gets back to the idea of why I think it can be regulated in different ways, can help manage some of that risk. And then I think, on the other hand, there is an element of, you know, just self-regulating. You know, say, for example, when you're pregnant, there are... I was pregnant, you know, just about... Just over a year ago, and the list of things people tell you not to eat is extraordinary. You know, if I, if I actually followed it, I don't think I'd be eating very much at all. I would be eating plain cheese and, and solid hard cheese, only hard cheese, and bread. I don't know. It was, it was extremely long. And so I think there is an element of just people having to take some responsibility for what their choices they're making. But at the same time, you know, I think there needs to... I mean, as I was saying before, I think there does need to be some regulation. And so I think the ways in which you permit raw milk, if you were to permit it, would help mitigate the extent to which that, the likelihood of people getting sick if they're going to consume it. Did you want to oh, look, not, not, I mean, that was great and I very much agree. And the only thing I would add to that is that um, I feel, you know, hashtag blessed about how, how fortunate we are today in 2015. We are here because so many mistakes have been made. And, and I very much appreciate everything that you said and, and I fully agree that, I mean, I really enjoyed um, that last part where you talked about that because I thought... Well, that's very true, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I've got three kids and I wouldn't want them... I would never... You know, someone said to me today, oh, you know, have you raised your kids on raw milk? And I was like, I would, I would never have given my kids 
raw milk from the health food store that we're selling under the guise of. So, but I am very respectful of how much has gone wrong, not just in Australia, but for hundreds and thousands of years, for us to get here where we can sit here and have this discussion in this room today. So I fully agree. Great, thanks. Um, oh, did you want to say anything else, Chris? Or? Uh, no, just no? that uh, the idea that you're talking about of small scale, people who know the producer, have a relationship with the producer, know the risks, have a conversation, that kind of commercial arrangement is at the risk of the individual. And that's the kind of cultivated education that is necessary for it to be safe, I would have thought, and a, and a true choice. When you have a market which is beyond, where you have a middleman, then your choices are actually being shaped by somebody else. Mm. And, and that's actually, when you get to the risks. Yeah. And can I jump in there and actually say, I actually think cosmetic milk is actually where probably there are greater risks because I think the people who are able to, you know, I guess make the decisions about either a relationship-based decision about the milk they want or um, know a bit more about where they're getting from. Whereas I think when you're buying a product from a shop, often the, rela the, the trust relationship you have may actually be with the retailer. And so when you've got products, you know, so people might buy it from a, say, a food cooperative that they go to regularly, they trust the shopping policies, they trust the way it's set up. And so the way I see it, there's almost an implied trust in the fact that this product is also going to be made safely that it would be otherwise be a direct trust relationship that you would have with a farmer. Mm -hmm. And so they're also acting, almost acting as a proxy in that way. And so I think that's where it gets much more complicated. And I think the whole issue around bath milk as well and things like that is... I do think people may make a lot of assumptions around the extent to which it um, has been produced safely. And it may well be. I'm not saying that actually... Because a lot of people who are producing raw milk are actually putting in place particular safety mechanisms. They're not required to by law because it's outside the formal regulatory system. They are putting in place systems to ensure cleanliness and ensure temperature controls and things like that. But you're making an assumption that that is in place. And, a lot of, you know, and so when you're buying it from a shop... Instead, you're sort of, I guess, people are making the assumption that that is being the case, and we don't have any way of knowing that that is the case at the moment because it's not regulated. Okay. Well, I might just go on to my next question, which follows in on well from the point you're making. Um, what do you think the best of the bunch is in terms of the way other jurisdictions have dealt with this? Um, are there any particular regimes of regulation that you think are effective that chime with that notion of um, reflecting a trust relationship between the purchaser and the producer? Um, I think the approaches probably that are most effective and most interesting in my, respect, my view are probably the way they've gone on in England and I guess more in New Zealand. I think the effectiveness of the English regime is probably shown by the fact that in the recent review, they, they did a recent review of their raw milk regulation to see if they should change their raw milk controls. And one of the findings was, in fact, that there had really been no increase in the outbreak of disease since they introduced, since they permitted more raw milk. Right. And so they were using it as a basis that, look, you know, we seem to be able to be doing this safely. Yeah. Um, and so, and the way it's regulated in England is really around you have to buy it direct from the farmer, um, which it, it instantly changes the distribution system and the scale at which it can occur because you can only, you know, you must, you know, an individual buys it from a farm, you can't be selling it in a shop. There, you can sell it in a farmer's market. There was a big case, actually, in the UK where um, 
I've gone blank on the name of the... What's the jig? Not Liberties? Yes, Liberties. Um, the, someone put a vending machine in Liberties. And it was... Warm milk. And it was... It, it, it was ended up being a debate about whether a farmer who stocked his vending machine and you bought it from the vending machine counted as purchasing direct from the farmer. And it was an interesting line, cross, you know, fine line about where does direct stop, and that's been debated. And actually, in New Zealand, they've been grappling with some of this as well. But I think, putting that aside, it, this kind of approach where it has to be controlled and there's ways of controlling the scale and introducing at the same time a complementary set of sort of perhaps more testing. So New Zealand introduces, you know, there's more testing for farmers, the same in England for people who are producing raw milk. So those two, I think, are the two models I think are most interesting. And when does a raw milk vending machine become a pop-up in an urban space and then becomes a store that's permanently fixed and if that's owned by the dairy farmer and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Um, Chris, you told a very um, compelling story about TB, and I'm just wondering if uh, you might talk a bit more about other contaminants that are in milk, because uh, the sort of narrative arc you were describing is one in which TB isn't a threat in the way it was before, but there are other contaminants in raw milk potentially. Could you tell us a bit about those? Um, They're just the standard ones in food poisoning generally. Right. So they're usually coliforms, which are poo-related, Okay. and uh, you're not meant to ingest them. Okay. They're meant to go out the other end. Okay. So, okay. Uh, but no, Campylobacter, E. coli, Campylobacter and Salmonella and E. coli are also uh, quite common in raw chicken. So, okay. especially in large industrialised countries. So, yep. UK, you, you wouldn't feed your dog a raw chicken wing because the scale of production there of chicken is so large that the Salmonella counts on chicken and eggs are quite high. Right. So, raw egg mayonnaise in places like that is also higher risk. So it, in any process of food production, there's always risk, and scale determines that risk, and pasteurisation happens to be one of the things which just creates a level playing field yep. with scale. So, You also, at the end of your talk, spoke about um, the idea of good microorganisms. Um, can you sort of uh, elaborate on that further in relation to pasteurisation? I mean, there are arguments made that pasteurisation kills off good microorganisms. How do you respond to that idea? Uh, I, I don't really have a response to that idea because I don't know is the answer. Okay. Um, I think there are a lot of claims made about natural foods and um, unadulterated foods and I'm certainly not someone who wants to live on the Silicon Valley diet of, of a bucket of chemicals which is being created um, basically as we speak. I do want to eat food but I want to eat safe food as well and I think ultimately, you know, Whole, whole foods and all these types of things have values. Superfoods, I'm not so convinced, and, but I'm certainly not an expert in nutrition. I'm just a sceptic. So. <laughs> and just one last, last question, um, perhaps anyone who wants to answer. What actually is the benefit of drinking raw milk? I don't think anyone actually covered that. Like, are we talking nutrition, taste? <laughs> well, according to new studies, there is absolutely no nutritional benefit at right. all between a, an organic tomato and a genetically modified one produced with... I mean, how can you even... You know, where would you start to argue that? Uh, and I spoke to at least three of the five um, people that I spoke to this today said, Claudia, there is no nutritional benefit in raw milk. And I was just sort of like, all right, thanks very much. You know, I, and a lot of people, he said, look, maybe some vitamin C is being taken out by the time we've pasteurised it, but really, people aren't drinking milk for vitamin C. You know, people these days have complete diets. There's, you know, humans don't need milk to be raw to get from it like they perhaps needed it hundreds of thousands. I disagree, personally. Um, 
I feel that it's... I mean, and you can, you can look into it for whatever reason suits. You can say, well, it's more flavourful and it's more nutrient-dense and the Asian population have the philosophy that if you're overcooking your vegetables, overboiling them, you're actually getting out a lot of the you know, important nutrition in the vegetables and it's very similar to milk. And the more processed milk is, the less benefit it has for your body. Um, I think that when you're wanting to have a product as pure as possible, whether it's a double espresso, you know, over having it with a whole lot of milk in a grande cup or it's a product that has been grown in a certain way, like an organic tomato over a genetically modified one, well, that means that I'm not actually buying into the whole world of chemicals and fertilisers on a property. So even if the effect is placebo, like some people in my industry and in the, you know, the food industry in general are arguing... You know, it's still your connection with what you feel is morally right. Um, but I do feel that, that it is a better, a less compromised product. Your turn. <laughs> um, all I was going to say is um, there's, you know, a lot of the regulators have attempted to do studies to look at, you know, individuals' sort of views that raw milk is better for them or that it improves their health or various things. And the main outcome from sort of scientific review perspective appears to be that there's no negatives to the milk from pasteurising it. Um, whether or not it is removing additional benefits is a different question. But And the other thing is that there are some studies suggesting that it may have some benefits, preliminary studies, that in terms of allergies. Um, but again, as the regulators put it, this, you know, this is very preliminary at this point in time. Um, what I wanted to add, which follows a bit from what Claudia said as well, is that it, you know the other thing that I think is interesting in this, and again, it's come from reading a lot of submissions that people have made around raw milk, is even if there is no scientifically proven evidence that it will improve your particular health condition, be it arthritis, be it cancer, be it whatever it is, there are lots of individuals who personally feel that it has fundamentally had a major impact on them. And so Whilst I'm not saying that's evidence that it is better for you, I think it's probably a bit harsh to completely discount the fact that whether it's a placebo effect or something else, for those particular mm. individuals, they have found that for them it has fundamentally changed their health outcome. And that's what you know they're writing over and over again to the regulator in terms of why they want raw milk to be permitted. And so I don't think that's evidence that there's necessarily raw milk you know, will change the health of anybody or make a difference. In fact, just because... John Smith found it, it really improved their arthritis. It may help nobody else in the world with their arthritis. I do think that there's, it's, there's something in the fact that, you know, it can't be completely dismissed that, you know, for lots of individuals from their personal experience, it has made a difference. And, again, it comes down to, I guess, the whole personal responsibility, the personal choice around the things about what you want to be able to do with products and maybe make involved. And, again, most of these people have actively chosen to find raw milk because they feel it may help them. So maybe, you know, you're skewing what the outcome you're getting for. You're looking for a positive outcome and you got one. But I still think it's a, you know, it's a valid It, it might be a connection as well with um, memories or travels. I mean, I've definitely had those cliché, amazing experiences where you're in France and you're on a dairy farm of a small artisan raw milk cheese producer and they say, hey, you know, and they come over here and they grab a cup and they're actually milking straight from the tea into the cup and they pass it to you and you're drinking milk that is obviously raw and it is still warm. And the flavour of raw milk, as we all know, is very different to when it's four degrees from your fridge. So it is more flavourful and it is, it's incredible. And it, that's also a single origin flavour, obviously. 
as opposed to a lot of the milk that we're getting that might be coming from four or five different farms. Uh, and it's, it's more of a perhaps a, a less pronounced um, expression of that one particular animal, breed of animal, and also farm. What, what, if it's clover or if there's weed in the paddock, what the animal's eating, if it's actually eating fresh grass or if it's in uh, a, um, a shed eating silage or hay. Or, um, so for me, the idea of being able to get healthy, safe, raw milk would be exciting because it's the closest thing that I can tap back into my wild, amazing experiences of artisan cheese and tradition in the industry that I've chosen to spend, you know, my life focusing on. So in my head, it's something that I would try to, you know, make happen. What was the original question? (laughs) Why drink raw milk? (laughs) Why drink raw milk? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it just is valuable to some people and there's, that's not necessarily a problem and there's no way that you should belittle that value or discount that value but you have to temper that with the realisation mm. that the expression of those values might cause... Jeopardise other people yeah. and, that's, I, and I don't want that like my, you know, my desire to have the product in the way that I want it, I don't want that at the expense of some kid, some toddler dying you know, it's, I'm really passionate about it but, but surely there's stuff that we can do Okay, all right. I'm sure there's lots of questions from the floor, so I might open it up at this point. Um, yep. Yeah. Um, we already have a model for the distribution of sale as raw milk. Oh. We already have a model for the safe distribution and sale of raw milk in Australia, and that is um, the legal sale of raw goat's milk in Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia and Western Australia. Why is it that people haven't become sick from consuming that and it's not just from the farm gate it's transported over considerable distances I guess that part of my question is to you Chris and to Alana is that something that your research will look at and compare the differences between goat's milk and cow's milk I'll take that as a comment (laughs) Uh, I'm not a microbiologist and certainly not an expert in milk transportation at all Um, so I have no particular basis for answering your question at all it could be something to do with the size of the dairy. If goat dairies, I don't know if they're very large scale. Often. I think they're generally quite small. They're quite small. Uh, some of them are, some of them are not. I do think there are differences in the anatomy of the animal in it's terms of the potential. That, yeah. I think that's one valid reason that the goat's teeth go out this and the food can't really get on them where it can't be Yeah. So there, there would be some factor there which is potentially anatomical, potentially to do with the properties of the milk, potentially to do with the scale of the enterprise, which means that, for whatever reason, that works in the way you've described. Uh, but I don't have an answer. Do you? <laughs> no. No. Uh, no. Uh, no. What, I would, what I would say is, I guess I'm not focusing on the raw goat's milk in a sense in that I think I'm more interested in whether we can have one that would apply to everything. At the moment, the goat's milk is kind of this exception in a couple of different jurisdictions. And it's under state regulation, under the exceptions, under the regulation... which I don't think is an ideal model for this kind of approach. I actually think in terms of developing a more best practice actual approach to regulation, it would be better to have a nationally based approach that actually was more tailored to the risks of the particular product. And what happened in that instance, actually to take what I want to do further, would be potentially you would have slightly different regulation for raw goat's milk producers to raw, you know, to camel milk producers to, I mean, I have no idea how risky camel milk is. You know, I know it's available around the place, but only pasteurised, but... No idea how risky it is. Um, I, I don't know whether even the gut of 
goats are quite, could be quite different in terms of what bacteria they hold as well, as well as the poo issue. So, do we need more money thrown at this to get these answers? Do we need, um, is there, or, you know... I don't really think money is the issue at the moment research, in terms of regulation. Yeah. Um... I think there's, I mean, the, the extent that there's far more research happening in microbiology around raw milk risks than any other part to do with raw milk. I mean, I do, I get sent the feeds of all the, the papers, you know, I'm on Science Direct. I read probably one paper in 100 because most of them, and I'm not a microbiologist, I don't need to know the intimate microbiology of some particular strain of cow's milk in Egypt. But, you know, there's all the literature is around that. So there's a lot of literature around that. There's much less around actually how you look at different ways of regulating. There is some, and that's what I'm working within, but there's not as much. The reason for that is pasteurisation is cheap and effective yeah. and it works. Yeah, and, it, it, and <laughs> I think for most milk products, it's what you need yeah. it, at the end of the day. I mean, most people just want to be able to go to the fridge. And, and that's what we have. Yeah, yeah, we we exactly. do that right now very successfully. So if the government really prioritised artisan cheese as the number one thing that public health was all about, then I'm sure you'd get lots of research. It so, didn't make it onto the Premier's priorities no. announced this week. It's an exciting time for cheese, and that's why I kind of talk more about milk, because I'm actually not too unhappy with how things are going yeah. with, with cheese. OK. All right. Um, let me take uh, the gentleman there. Yeah. Um, uh, relative to that last question, I, I just wonder if, if uh, the susceptibility of goats to TB is the equivalent of... Of, of cattle, I, 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 some in the back of my mind, I think goats goats don't get TB. TB. And uh, the other thing is that I imagine all these <coughs> uh, pathogens that, that you want to exclude from the milk products, they'd mainly be in the carbohydrate range of, of, uh, of the milk, whereas the fat, which is the cream on the top... Um, which is where you get, I suppose that's mainly your cheese and your butter, is that equally sensitive to, the, if, it, if it's not pasteurised before it starts, is, is, is cheese and butter uh, just as risky as, as, as regular milk? And um, uh, I've got another question, but that's... Why don't we just stick with that one for now? My, my understanding is that raw milk cheeses, uh, are usually the process of curing them sanitizes them so it creates a culture which then kills off and limits and deteriorates Inside. the nasty bugs it depends on the cheese it depends so. on the cheese but if you have a soft cheese it's much and more risky content and, and yeah yeah there's lots of factors in it but traditional cheese making techniques actually evolved around making cheese safe without pasteurization being available um the, the question about fats and and i have no idea you read this literature yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that 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 bit so much. I mean, I think the cream from the milk would often be part of, like, the cream and the milk would be part of the cheese. You know, well, for my very amateur, amateur, amateur cheese making, um, I was just using all the milk and the cream that came on the top and everything. You know, and because I wasn't using homogenized, I was using unhomogenized milk. So, which is sorry, which is where it's separated still, as opposed to all blended in together to a single consistency. But we we <clears throat> we also, I mean, uh, we have some people in the room tonight who, who really know their stuff as well. So if you feel like you're sitting on some information that you would like to contribute, <laughs> yeah. please. Uh, you, yep. Um, Michael, Bow- um, Michael Bowen's my name. Um, my farm is, uh, has, is a uh, certified organic um, farm, dairy farm mm-hmm. in uh, Victoria. 
Um, it's produced raw milk since 1949. We have sold milk from there, to, uh, raw, in the raw states up until uh, the end of January this year when uh, a bureaucratic decision was made to um, halt the sale of raw milk uh, in Victoria. Um, much to the angst of you know, a, a lot of people down there. There's now um, been um, three VCAT hearings and will probably lead on into the Supreme Court as um, uh, Mark Tyler uh -huh. over is, is there in um, South Australia, but on a different uh, note. I would ask uh, Claudia, uh, that death that keeps being referred to in the media as a result of that child drinking raw milk. I was with the um, um, proprietor of uh, Mountain View yesterday, having a meeting, got an update on it. The coroner has still not handed down uh, that decision on that. Um, that is based, that report that that child died from raw milk is a lie. Mm -hmm. um, there was a two-and-a-half-month gap. The child had uh, terminal cancer, and it's just a lie. Now, um, we've been told that, um, you know, they're now reviewing um, and trying to get some regulations we've heard tonight. We're going down a very dangerous track here, trying to regulate the mainstream big farmer to be able to do this and put it in the hands of Woolworths and Coles. <coughs> I've processed for Coles and Woolworths in my time, um, but I've also been a big supplier of raw milk um, in the state of Victoria, and uh, I just think that it's, uh, you can, you'll never control it, you'll never regulate it. The only way to go is that farm has to be um, a, a certified organic farm. Um, the trouble with the generic farms is they're using chemicals and all the stuff and the market for this raw milk is to the affluent market. The person that can afford to pay six or seven dollars a litre, a reasonable price for this milk. The, the other people are not really, you can't go on price. Uh, it must be quality, trust and faith in the supplier. We've been involved in dairy farming, processing, factory, raw milk, shops that we've owned and operated for over 25 years and farmers markets. We've never had one person that's ever sick or died, but I have had a child that was vaccinated at the age of two years of age, compulsory mainstream vaccination, blew his neurological brains out and we've had to look after him ever since. And that's mandatory vaccination coming for Victoria. You cannot have a vaccine the same vaccine for every child because we're all different okay. and we've got to be very careful this how we regulate this. Is your question, was it directed at me because I said before that I'm passionate about it but not so much that I would want it at the risk of someone? Is that, was that a comment? Okay, so uh, I can see your point. I can totally see your point. No, I, I see your point. All right, we've only got five more minutes, so we might just take one or two more questions. Uh, hi, uh, Tristan Harris. I'm the CEO of Harris Farm Markets, and we've got a, a, a great interest in, in raw milk. I love raw milk. I've had a lot to do with the dairy industry. I, the, the farmers give it to me every time I go on their farm. It tastes beautiful. I've got a friend who's got a kid uh, with a medical condition who he is convinced will be helped by raw milk. 
So we've done a lot of work into trying to get, uh, get raw milk into our stores, including in small herds. We've got a, a 40 cow herd in, uh, in the New England region and of Jersey cows, and so we, we already sell a single origin milk. It's fantastic milk, but we've been testing it consistently and regularly to try and get, to try and work out a process where we can sell raw milk. And we can't. It's not safe. We cannot find a way. We've, we've tried all sorts of herd management, and we keep coming up with, uh, you know, Campylobacter, we keep coming up with Salmonella, we keep coming up with E. coli at irregular intervals, really hard to pin down how and why. And I, I, we, we sold some of that, that cheese that, uh, that killed people last year, um, the, the Jindy cheese outbreak. And there was a suspicion in New South Wales where nobody died, but there was a suspicion that some of the cheese uh, that had made someone sick came from our stores. Now, that was devastating. And you can't take a risk on someone's life. The fact that a small herd is only going to kill a small number of people is just unacceptable. And I, I do think that that kid died from, from raw milk. I do think that they, they did enough work to determine that that's what killed that kid. And if one kid dies, it's too much. So I would love to sell raw milk. If someone can find a way, Claude, if we can get that, that testing strip. The Domino's tracking app. The Domino's tracking app on, on the milk. I'm in. I'm in boots and all. But somebody has to do that. That, that is the... Sorry. That's the way it has to happen. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry. Do you have a card? Do you have a card? Okay. Okay, great. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you for okay. coming along tonight. All right. Uh, does, does anyone want to respond to the most recent question? Otherwise so we can take one more. I just want to say awesome. More of a comment. Okay. <laughs> one more question from the audience. Yep. Good evening. Saxon's my name. Um, it's fabulous to be here this evening and it's great to see all the passion on the panel there. Um, probably a question for you, Claudia and, uh, and Alana. Um, you mentioned before that you thought the desire for raw milk is quite boutique and niche. Um, if there was a technology, if we can just enter the dream space for a moment, if, if there was a technology out there that absolutely guaranteed a safe raw milk, uh, and I love raw milk for um, all the reasons you mentioned, you know, certainly flavour being one of them that probably hasn't been mentioned enough, but if there was a, a technology that absolutely guaranteed it, um, do you think the market would be very tight and niche or do you think it would be a broader market? I think there'd be a big population of people watching and it would go from being a novelty and a guess what Harris Farm is selling raw milk okay we'll, we'll just watch it for another month they've been selling it for a month and no one's been sick and then I think they'd find a way of you know distributing it to all their stores and I think it would grow um, on 702 this morning a guy called in they were talking about this uh, in preparation for tonight and a guy called in he said oh I grew up in the Hunter Valley and we used to drink the milk all the time uh, but when the city cousins visited us, visited us they were always like really sceptical they just thought it was like really weird and, and I, I heard from a colleague of mine in the cheese industry who's uh, over in America and he, he said um, he was talking about how the fear, the, the fear of food kind of increases with the distance from where it's produced. Like, the further away you are and the less that you know, the mystification of the process of producing something, you get kind of sceptical. 
But if you have, and I'm looking at a model at the moment, an inner city micro dairy where you have everything and you have big glass panel down the middle of the, of the warehouse and you get your school groups coming through and you can do your master classes and your tour groups and they can actually see how everything's happening, perhaps that will give consumers confidence when you've, when you've been able to successfully grow it safely. I definitely think there's a commercial, commercially viable opportunity for someone who wants to... Okay, we've seen it with coffee. I mean, everyone's been drinking coffee. The idea of taking it to that niche level where you're cold filtering 30 years ago would have been incomprehensible. Um, Cold-pressed juices. I mean, there is a market for sure. What do you think? Um, There is a market, but I would also say that even in places where it is allowed it is still, still quite a small market. Yep. So if you look at like the US, for example, in states where it's permitted, I don't think it's even above 3%. And I think that's a really large estimate. And equally in, I think in the UK, it's really down around 2 or 3%. And these are places where it's allowed to be purchased. And so I, I suspect it would still stay quite small. The other reason it's highly likely to stay quite small is if we introduce a regulated form um, and, and particularly introduce very stringent requirements the requirements are likely to be expensive, which would mean the pass-through effect onto the price is also likely to be really high. So it's likely to stay, unless you're a farmer accessing it directly from your farm and sharing it with your neighbours, if you're buying it in a shop, which I'm still not convinced is necessarily that safe, sorry, but, you know, because I think there's a, lot, there's a whole other things, a series of chains of events that can occur in a way that can increase contamination. But I also think it's going to be an expensive product, so people who really are going to have to have money to buy it if we had a regulated product. And we have a very small population in Australia, even smaller those who yeah, are interested. Uh, yeah, the only thing is, basically, not everybody has a very large disposable income. So mm. it really depends upon what you're willing to sacrifice mm. for raw milk. So uh, people used to spend 40 bucks a week smoking, and that was worth it for them. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that's not so good for you. Okay, well, and we're there. allowed to do it. Yeah. Well, increasingly, though, regulations prohibit you from doing it. True. <laughs> okay. Or just to show, it gives you lots of warnings. <laughs> well, fertile um, material for discussion yeah, after one. the meeting <laughs> oh, and for the next one. Okay, well, please join me in thanking our panellists for the discussion. Thank you.